I like to tell people that not having documents and the legal right to move is so difficult. All you can think about is hiding, staying unnoticed. You don't think about anything but survival. From Crossroads Media, this is See Here Love, the podcast with Melinda Estabrooks, Season 8, Episode Number 20. You are seen, you are heard, you are loved by God. You're not alone, you're fully known, you are loved by God. Well, welcome back to See Here Love. I'm your host, Melinda Estabrooks, and I am really looking forward to this conversation today. And I will say this before I share what we're going to talk about and introduce our special guest. This was one of those moments where I've interviewed over 600 people, read, honestly, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books for interviews. But this book, this moment for me, was one of very few where I was actually stopped and had to really think and reread over and over again what was written on the pages, what this author shared Um, about a topic that I have kind of pushed to the side um, and have felt really strongly convicted after reading this book that I need to change some attitudes, thinking, and actions. And so this was a a really important moment for me, I believe, as I start my new year. So I want to just preface that to our listeners and viewers that this this is a really profound moment for me. I'm really excited for this conversation. So today... We're going to be talking about a lot of things, some hard things, some really important things, some good things, some challenging things, convicting things. But today we're going to talk about our ethnocentric faith, um, empowering our immigrant neighbors rather than pushing them to the fringes of a white dominant culture. We're going to look at examining our incomplete and harmful traditional approaches to immigration ministries and activism. Uh, We're going to look at what should the church's response be to immigrants and refugees we're going, to be, we're going to be listening and learning about recognizing ourselves in our immigrant neighbors, that we are all foreigners. We're going to chat about how to dismantle white supremacy. And then out of all of this, hopefully come out of this conversation with new insight into our shared humanity and need for belonging and liberation. And to help us and me learn through all of this is my very special guest, Karen Gonzalez. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I am thrilled that you're here. Um, Karen, I'm just going to share a little bit about you. For those who don't know you, you are a writer, a speaker, and immigrant advocate who emigrated from Guatemala as a child. Karen attended Fuller Theological Seminary, where she studied theology and missiology, and she's worked in the nonprofit sector for 13 years. In In addition to her first book, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the journey to belong. She's written for Christianity Today, Christian Century, Sojourners, and the Baltimore Sun. She lives in Baltimore, Maryland, and she's also written this book that we're going to talk about, Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration, which everybody needs to get right now ASAP. So welcome, Karen. Welcome, welcome. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and your thoughts. But before we start into the book and talking about immigration, it's a new year, Karen. What are your hopes for this year? 2023. (laughs) We've come through a lot the past two years, three years. Any hopes, thoughts for this new year? Yes. So 
Thank you for asking that. <laughs> I used to be one of these people that used to say new year, new me. I no longer <laughs> say that. It's new year. It's same old me. Really, my greatest hope for this year is not to have a terrible election season. I know this is the year it's going to start and we're going to see the candidates come out. And often it's so much mudslinging and so much attacking communities that are already marginalized. So my greatest hope is that it would be civil, that there would be discourse that's helpful and good. That would be the greatest thing that could happen this year for me. That's amazing. That wasn't what I expected. I usually when I ask this question, it's like, I've got a word, Melinda. I've got a hope. But I really love, again, uh, even throughout the book, just thinking of others, thinking of impact of our community and neighborhood and our nation about people. So it doesn't surprise me, Karen, that is that is your hope. And I think, too, you know, last year I was like, yay. 2021 was horrible. We're going to go into 2022. Woohoo! And <laughs> that wasn't really a great year. I mean, personally for me, health-wise, I've shared this before. I was in ICU uh, for a number of days, didn't, didn't know what was going to happen. Um, COVID, mental health challenges, so many things. And so I think you're right. I'm, I'm coming into 2023 with a more thoughtful, measured responsible, maybe realistic response <laughs> to the new year. You know, it's like, I don't have great expectations, but I think, you know, my hope too is that in, in light of what you're saying, things go smooth and well and simple and right and true and good. So excellent. Thank you. Well, I, I want to hear your story, Karen, immigrating from Guatemala as a child and then your experience as an immigrant in the U.S. And there's a lot of parts that we'll pull out. I know that you'll share, but I, I just want to hear your story because, you know, when I hear stories, stories are powerful. I'm a storyteller. I love drawing out stories and stories are um, such a powerful thing. I think in your book, one of the quotes was from, you said a, was it a native, native Indian proverb that mm -hmm. if you, what was it? If you tell me the truth, oh shoot, I wish I had it here. Yeah, if you tell me a story, um, I'll forget it. No, if you if you tell me a truth, right? It starts with yeah, you yeah, tell yeah. me tell a me truth. the truth. If you tell me the truth, um, oh no, I, I I literally underlined it in your. It's book. a storytelling chapter. It's the um, yeah, yeah, yeah. ethical storytelling. Yeah, uh, we'll get there. But it's that thing about like if you tell me the truth, I'll remember it. If or no, if you tell me a truth, I'll believe you. If you tell me a fact or something, but if you tell me a story, it will live in my heart forever. It's that kind yes. of thing, right? And so I think right. it's important to start this conversation with your own truth and story. So I'd love to hear it. Sure. So yes, my family migrated from Guatemala when I was about nine years old. And originally the plan had been actually to settle in Canada oh. because... Canada actually took in a lot of Guatemalans during the 1980s because of the of the uh, civil war in Guatemala and many of them live in Calgary actually yes. <laughs> we still have friends that live there um, around this time my uncle became a US citizen my dad's brother lived in the US was married to an American woman he had just become a US citizen so we found out that he could sponsor us of course what we didn't know at the time was that 
there's a very long line. And at that time, the line was only about three and a half years. Now that line, that same line is 13 years. Wow. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. So when people say, oh, get in line and do things the right way, some people don't, even, some lines are even longer. If you're from China, India, the Philippines, or Mexico, the line is 23 years. Wow. So it's even longer than that. And so we moved to the U.S. and we were without documents. So we were not uh, legal uh, immigrants for the first few years that we lived here. And it was, you know, very something very difficult for me when I learned in high school that the United States had funded the Civil War in Guatemala. And that's why the United States didn't consider people who left Guatemala refugees. But Canada did because Canada wasn't funding that mm -hmm. war. And then I found out our migration was caused by the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a really hard thing to reckon with at that time. And we settled in Los Angeles because it was a big city where you could get lost. There's lots of different kinds of people there. And so we lived there the first few years until our green card came up. Mm -hmm. And then once we had that permanent residence card, then my parents finally felt free to move to other places. And so I was uh, raised in Florida and that's where I went to the university and where I lived until I went to seminary. And I would say that our migration experience was really difficult. I, I like to tell people that, you know, having, not having documents and the legal right to move is so difficult. All you can think about is hiding, staying unnoticed. You don't think about anything but survival. But once you have that paper that says you have the legal right to stay, all of a sudden the world opens up and you can start thinking about things like, can I buy a house? Should I put my children in little league or music classes? All of a sudden your concerns change dramatically. And so that was the experience for our lives changed night and day from one day to the next after we had those papers and so yeah that was my family story it was really hard for a long time and of course there's always the cultural and language adaptation we didn't speak any english when we arrived i mean i knew very little things like good morning hi and then um i had to be in english-speaking school all day long and so it was really, really difficult. And we went from a place where our parents had leisure time and where they were around to all of a sudden we were alone mm -hmm. most of the time. And we lived in a neighborhood that wasn't that safe. And so we were alone and our parents were always working because that's life for immigrants. It's about survival. And so they were working all the time, even though they'd been professionals when we lived in Guatemala, all of a sudden they were doing things like custodial work. And don't get me wrong, that's good, honest work, but it's not the kind of work they were used to doing. And so, yes, it was when sometimes when people talk to me about migration, they talk about things like their culture disappearing or being diluted. You know, they're worried about these philosophical things like culture and language. And most immigrants are just worried about survival about the next day about having enough about staying unnoticed and so that was my family's life as well 
Terrence, you're talking about family, but now for you, how are you as far as forming this, becoming the good immigrant, um, assimilating so you didn't stand out? I mean, I understand that. I mean, I have a different story, but coming to Canada in 1986, and I've shared this throughout the time on the show about I was one of only two brown kids in my grade eight, one of five kids of color in my high school and for the first time because I lived in Asia most of you know up to to 13 years old for the first time ever experiencing racism and and not even knowing what what the heck like I don't understand this I lived in Asia and there was no issue there I had my friends were from all over the world and then I come to Canada at that time and I stood out and so you always want to not stand out but then on the opposite for me i then did the opposite and then stood out so i could be unique and be the person be the shiny person the amazing person because it was either that or hide you know and so there's a lot of challenges racism biases that i had to really struggle with as a young woman growing up what was your experience like for you yeah so in our family and in, i would say just i it's something that i felt from the culture as well, there was this pressure to be the good kind of immigrant because everyone around you talked about the bad kind of immigrant, the immigrant that didn't speak English well, that didn't understand how to navigate the culture, that didn't migrate legally, Mm -hmm. uh, the immigrant that wasn't super grateful, and the immigrant that um, was collecting public benefits perhaps, Mm -hmm. or was nostalgic for their home country and had, you know, flags and other symbols of that in their home or in their car. So in my family, I feel like my parents were very clear, hey, there are immigrants here that are seen as the bad kind of immigrant and that's not who we are. We are going to be the good kind, the hardworking kind that puts our head down and we're going to, you know, we're going to have some upward mobility here. We're going to go to college. We're going to learn English well. Not only are we going to learn English well, but we're still going to speak Spanish at home. (laughs) So there were a lot of pressures to be a certain kind of immigrant. And I never realized the toll that that took on me. But there was this kind of, it was all very unspoken, but my parents sometimes said it in very direct ways. They would compare us, you know, to other kinds of immigrants that have parades and that have their flags out. Um, and so I lived under this rubric of worthiness. And so even my closest friends didn't know that my family was, had been undocumented, that, that we hadn't had legal papers to move. I, it's not a story I really talked about. And, you know, the first time I was laid off from a job and I had to collect unemployment, I just felt a deep sense of shame. Like, this is what a good immigrant does not do. A good immigrant does not collect public benefits, even though I'd never done that in my whole Mm -hmm. life. And this was a legitimate situation of need. And when I started struggling with depression and thinking about that, you know, everyone wants the able-bodied, hardworking immigrant And all of a sudden I was not well. And that brought on a whole lot of shame because I felt like this is not a desirable kind of immigrant person. And so I started to reflect, you know, after this season on how much 
this rubric, this idea of the good immigrant was really deeply harmful, not just to me, but to others, because I use that same rubric of worthiness for other people, mm-hmm. not just myself. Uh, and it really took away also from the image of God in me, because here's the facts. People, countries want laborers, but what they receive are human beings. Mm-hmm. And immigrants are no different than any other human being. We have the same flaws. We have the same frail humanity. And all these things that I thought were so shameful are actually just part of being human. And I was taking that away from other people as well. This pressure was taking me not just away from the gospel, but also away from Christian community because I didn't feel like I could be fully Mm. myself. If I was fully myself and I was so flawed as an immigrant person, then maybe I just didn't deserve inclusion. Maybe I'm one of those people that should go back to their country the way that you hear people Mm. say, if that makes sense. Mm. Wow. You know, I hear a lot of that, the shame of it. uh, And that's really hard. I mean, and you went through a lot of difficult times, your, your, your mother's passing and, and the depression, your father's challenges, Mm -hmm. you know, mental health. It's a lot. It's a lot for a young woman, a woman to carry. Yeah, it was really a lot. And yeah, when my mother died, I felt in a sense I'd lost both my parents because my father was not able to cope. And he fell into alcoholism and really started struggling with his own mental health. And so it was a really, it was a really difficult time to not be able to say, I need help to have to pretend and keep up a front of a certain kind of person Mm -hmm. because I felt that my family and I were guests. And I think, I think it's harmful to talk about immigrants in terms of guest and host, because I don't know about you, but when I have a guest at my house, people are on their best behavior, (laughs) even though you say things like mi casa es tu casa, right? (laughs) Your home is my, um, my home is your home. People still behave as if it's your home and they're cautious and careful. And so we can't put that pressure on people to be perpetual guests for generations Mm -hmm. because this is what happens to those of us that are brown and black or Asian. We can't melt into whiteness the way that Italians did and the Irish did and, you know, Greeks and other Southern Europeans and Eastern Europeans that's not going to happen for us. And, you know, I have a friend in California who is like third generation American born Chinese. She still gets asked where she's from. And she's like, here, I'm from San Francisco. (laughs) I think the same thing. They're like, where are you from? I go, "Uh, Burlington, Ontario, Canada. No, no, no. (laughs) But then it's so awkward. Kind of like, no, I mean like where I'm like Burlington, Ontario, Canada. Like that's where I've been living. Well, what's your citizenship? Canadian. Well, you know what I mean, Melinda. I'm like, no, why don't you tell me? You know, like I'm always like, exactly. why are you actually asking me? Because those quest- those questions are actually incorrect in what you're asking, like what you're saying. I know what they, I know what they're trying to do, but I let them kind yeah. of go a little bit because I'm like, ask the right question. <laughs> exactly. Also, like, what's your, what's your ethnic background? And then you can ask them, what's your ethnic yeah, background? Like, and they're like, uh, uh, I, I think a combination of a number of things. I go, okay. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I think that's um, that's a really good point about the guests and hosts. I think that's really important to know. And I'm sorry that you carried a lot of that, Karen, you know, with you. Um, because, I mean, women enough carry shame on a number of fronts, but then add shame because of being an immigrant and what you believe or was told that was put on you to carry even more. Now you've got more that has been placed mm-hmm. on you to carry in the burden. How did you, and, you know, and you could still be, you know, continuing to, to go through it, but how did you work through and wrestle through shame and maybe not having to live in the good immigrant, but being in the middle of the good immigrant and the bad immigrant, you know, like what, what has that looked like for you? And how did you, how did you process and get there or are getting there? Yes. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. That's a great question. I really started to wrestle with this as a harmful myth that was put upon me. Um, When I started doing advocacy for uh, the children of immigrants who were brought here uh, when they were small kids, and in the U.S. we call them dreamers, the Mm. DREAM Act, is part of that because um, it's an acronym. But basically, they were brought here as children by their parents, and they were unauthorized immigrants. And often they're held up as, oh, it's not their fault. They're these, you know, hardworking, they're college students and young adults, and it's not their fault. They were brought here as, um, you know, undocumented um, and so they're often pitted against their own parents, mm-hmm. like their parents are bad people and mm-hmm. bad immigrants, but the children are, you know, these innocent, good um, people because they were children. And to me, that seemed entirely unhelpful because, first of all, I never met any dreamer that felt like their parents were evil and bad people. Um, most of the people I've met, if not all, feel like they want a pathway to citizenship and they want it for their parents as well. They don't hold up their parents as terrible immigrants. And so that to me started the beginning of seeing how this was playing out at a more national level. And I thought, you know, I wasn't involved in this discussion, Mm -hmm. but I thought this is wrong. Why are we pitting people against each other as good and bad immigrants when in fact what we need is advocacy for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really began to not just address it, you know, publicly in, the, in terms of advocacy, but also internally. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started wrestling with the story of Rahab, for example, and mm-hmm. I started to recognize the way that this showed up in the scriptures of you have this woman who is a sex worker, mm-hmm. who is a trickster, uh, who lives on the margins of her own society of her own people and yet she finds full inclusive belonging mm-hmm. among the Israelites you know she is not just welcome you know they make a covenant with her hey we'll save your life if you help us um, and she does exactly what she promised to do and that includes lying and hiding <laughs> and doing all of these things that many of us might find distasteful And yet, after the conquest of Jericho, she lives 
in Israel with honor. She's not just welcomed into some little corner where she can be marginalized among them. She marries within the community. Mm-hmm. Her son is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. <laughs> she becomes an important and member of the community, and she doesn't live with this bad foreigner kind of cloud. She lives as family. And I started to see that story in a much different light. You know, when you're an immigrant, you'll read the Bible through immigrant eyes. Mm-hmm. And you'll start to see the movement of people in the Bible. And so that was the beginning of a journey for me of really recognizing, no, there's no bad immigrants. There's no good immigrants. There's just human beings. And human beings are flawed. And they're going to have all these issues that were in my family, alcoholism, the mental illness, you know, the grief over losing my mom, all of these things, these are not immigration problems. These are human problems. And they happen to all humans in all different places. And so Mm. it was really important for me to wrestle with God through that and really reclaim Mm. uh, that humanity. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. Yeah. Karen, that's so good because, you know, in a way then it kind of puts us all on this even playing field. Right. Because, you know, and I think about this as I've been hearing stories and there have been traumatic stories I've heard and hard stories. But as we share our story, a lot of people said, I felt that way. I've been through that. I only I thought I was the only one that was feeling that shame. You are, too. Like, all of a sudden, it, it it's not so big when you realize, oh, other people have experienced the same things or similar things or part things. And. And it's a human thing. It, it, it might not just be my thing. It could be, and I think that's what I've realized from 25 years of doing communication, how close and connected and similar we are, mm-hmm. how we are all very closely connected in our stories and our experiences. And, you know, and I appreciate you sharing, even within the book, just, uh, uh, you know, into your experience, difficult experience because I think for a lot of people they're like oh I'm not the only one Karen Gonzalez felt the same way <laughs> this was not easy and I think and also I think there gives power to that I also think for me as I shared my story of some really difficult things throughout my life it didn't have power over me anymore shame did not have power over me you know um all of that like it, it just there was it was like I just was unshackled and then I could be free um, to share. And so I so appreciate that. So good. Okay. And I want to talk now and just maybe more of a high level for people. Cause there's a lot of questions I have here, but I want to start off with, cause in your book, you talk a lot about that our traditional approaches to immigration and activism, um, can be harmful that there, there are some issues within the way we think about it. So maybe explain how most people think about immigration and immigrants how this can be harmful. Cause I kind of want to set it up as here's where we're at and then kind of move into some solutions and, and way of rethinking, reframing um, our thinking to help myself, Karen and our listeners and viewers to start thinking in new ways. So what would you say is our, our traditional approach, our thinking about immigrants, immigration, activism? 
Sure. So our our traditional approach when working with immigrant communities, and again, I appreciate the heart and the intent that people have, that churches have, that communities have about this, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't do harm. Mm-hmm. Your intent can be good and the impact can still be harmful. And so the intent is often to serve and to care for and to love the communities, but the approach often doesn't do that because the approach is often we welcome you Hmm. we serve you we are the host you are the guests and so there's no mutuality within that conversation and it sounds like well what's the big deal about that well what happens when your approach is that way is that you start to think of immigrants as having less in every way Hmm. So immigrants do have less when you think about economics when many arrive, right? M- most immigrants have economic needs. They have a need to share, to cha- uh, learn the language, to learn the culture. And these are very short-term needs. But immigrants also come with gifts and talents and skills, with faith, with rich cultural traditions, We bring a lot with us. It's not just needs, but often when people are part of immigration activism or ministry, immigrants are treated as if they don't have anything to give or offer that only moves in one way, that hospitality. So we don't learn at their feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't ask questions. We make decisions on behalf of immigrants. Oh, they need this rather than asking, what do you need? Their felt need may be very different from what you're perceiving that they need, right? And so that's where I think that kind of, you know, charity work, ministry work, activism, however we want to call it, really what it does is it turns people into needy strangers. Hmm. And, And it really puffs up the host, right? That person gets to be a savior, gets to provide, gets to impart. And so it feeds a sort of savior complex while keeping somebody else as a needy stranger that doesn't have anything to give. And so that kind of ministry is extremely harmful. And it shows up in really, really subtle ways. I remember having a conversation with a woman who was volunteering with refugee resettlement and she was really upset and she was telling me how this family, this refugee family from Somalia was buying a TV. And I said, well, isn't, aren't they using their own money? Yes, they are, but it's a waste of money. They should save it and they should save it and, you know, buy a house or move into a different place. And I said, but they're adults and it's their money and they get to decide how they want to spend it. And, you know, she was very insistent with me. And I said, look, I have a TV. You have a TV. It is not a necessity for anyone. Mm -hmm. It is always uh, a kind of luxury item, right? Mm -hmm. But it's sometimes very nice. You know, where where she lives, there's channels that are in the language of the Somali refugees. And so they get to connect with their community. They get to relax and not be in a stressful environment where they don't know the language and the culture all the time. Mm -hmm. And I said, and isn't that an important thing for that family? But furthermore, 
we don't get to make decisions on behalf of adults about how they use their money. But this is the way that immigrants Mm -hmm. are often treated. And again, it's very nuanced and subtle the way that shows up. But it's like saying, I know better. It's the way you might interact with a child, very paternalistic. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way that it shows up. Now, in contrast, I know this church community where I live here in Baltimore, and it was really interesting during the pandemic, you know, the church is in a a neighborhood that is full of Central American families. And rather than making a decision for the families, they asked the families, what can we do to support you? We know many of you are working. What can we do? And the family said, we would really love it if you would help us help our children to do remote schooling by offering your Wi-Fi. And they could have made a decision. They could have said, oh, these people need, you know, food pantry or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or something else. But instead, they actually asked the question and they were given a response. And so that is the right way yeah. uh, to work with people. And so, yeah, it's, I think that it happens a lot. And I understand that the heart behind it isn't, you know, to harm people in any way, but it still does. Yeah. We still have to honor people's full humanity and we have to respect um, their choices and respect their full dignity. Mm-hmm. It's so good because it, it kind of segues in then, which is the basis of your book and really what you're, you're really about, Karen, is putting immigrants at the center of the conversation. What you've just said is not putting our issues or needs on them, but you're saying to actually listen to them and their, and their needs and what they want. Because that's the big question. How do we put immigrants at the center of the conversation about immigration? Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's really what I'm advocating for in this book. Putting immigrants at the center of the conversation rather than pushing them to the edges and all the focus being on the people doing the welcoming. Yes. Uh, on all the people that are Native citizens. We need to think about, well, how is this impacting How is this decision impacting uh, immigrant people, not just how is this going to affect me, for example? You know, it really, yeah, Karen, really, I think one of the things about this book was that I realized how much it's about me. (laughs) The savior complex, me. Like, I want to do something good, so I am going to then give and then, but I want to make the decisions for people on what I think is best or what looks good on me. It's so me-centered. Like I was, you know, the, as I read through the book, as I was like talking to my husband through what you were sharing, you know, and it gave me just a moment, like a pause, just like, where is that in me? Because it is in me. Like, I want to like impose my things. It's just like my kids are teenage kids. You know, you always want to be like, you are not wearing that shirt out. Well, why? Because it's going to reflect on me that he doesn't wash his clothes, that he wears Halloween shirts you know, 365 days, you know, a year. Like, why does that bother me so much? Because if I was honest, it reflects on me thinking, what kind of bonus parent like stepmom would let your child go out with a Halloween shirt? You know, like, but at the end of the day, it's like, and does it matter? Like it, you know, I mean, what, what makes them feel good? I mean, you know, there's a lot of other things, but I think that's such a good point about you know, as we put immigrants at the center of the conversation, we actually really need to listen to their needs and then let them make their choices, too, as adults, like the TV. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you don't tell another adult how they should spend their money. Unless they're asking you, you know, but they're not asking you. And you can, and so. you can like, and you know, it's not like you can't give direction and give guidance. But at the end of the day, as adults, they make the decisions. And so mm-hmm. it, it's so interesting because then we freak out about it. But it's like if somebody was trying to tell us to do that with our money, if somebody told me not to buy TV, I'd be like, why are you telling, you know what I mean? Who are you to say that? So it's just, it's just, I'm, I'm listening to you. I'm going, wow, we're so easy to do that. But if somebody did that to us, we'd have some big problems. Yeah, and it you know? it comes up in other ways too. Like people want, for example, you know, when I talk to caseworkers at the organization where I work, when I talk to them, they do refugee resettlement, and they say refugees aren't grateful. They're often discouraged, mm-hmm. sad, they're traumatized, they long for home. This is this is what they experience. Yes, they have found safety and they have found refuge here, but it doesn't mean that everything is now perfect mm-hmm. and they've forgotten about home and the family left behind and their home country. And, you know, there's a lot of complexity in their experience and they need to be given room to be fully human and experience all of that yeah. instead of the pressure to be really grateful um, that they're resettled. So good, good reminder. I want to talk about, <laughs> you know, in your book, and even it's come up in a lot of conversations about dismantling white supremacy, you know, in our own lives, experiences, family, or of origin culture. Because as I've read through your book and as I've been thinking through this, there is obviously a lot there. Mm-hmm. For immigrants who come to the North American context, the U.S., Canada, you know, white supremacy, um, you know, reigns. It's, it's you know, from uh, one of the biggest struggles I say in my story, like my testimony, is one of the issues was when I came to Canada as a 13-year-old, no magazine, teen magazine or anything represented a Filipino. The models in clothing, in ads of clothes or anything at that time, Karen, were Filipino. Mm-hmm. They're all white, blonde or fair, like Bionic Woman that you mentioned, Lindsay Wagner in your mm-hmm. book, which I loved that show as well. Um, but that was that was the picture of beauty, was light skin, blonde hair, light eyes, thin, no big booty like what I have, or big lips. I used to be, um, I was always made fun of for my big lips when I was growing up. And for my body shape, I'm little, I'm under five foot, but curvy. I mean, I was not the look of beauty. And so I realized how much I was living under and then going, I will never measure up, try to change things. And so let's just talk about that. I think that's really important, especially for our younger listeners and viewers who are struggling with this. Um, let's talk about what, what kind of conversations we need to do, what kind of change in our thinking um do we need to do as we dismantle you know this the white supremacy within our own lives and 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 for some people they're like that's not in my life i'm not affected by it i think we all are Mm -hmm. i believe we all are yeah i believe we all are because we're all connected well very similar to you melinda i had the same experience of not seeing women that look like me anywhere uh and feeling very much outside of the culture Mm -hmm. with no representation of me or my body anywhere. 
And I think one of the biggest pressures I experience, and I think one of the ways that white supremacy shows up is in the, the pressure that we put on immigrants to assimilate. Yeah. And I think often people don't realize that there are other and better ways to help people adapt to a new country because assimilation is essentially asking people to shake off their culture and to replace it with American culture or white Canadian culture. Mm -hmm. And that is a lot of loss for us and our families. And so it's white supremacy because there's nothing wrong with our cultures. They're not inferior because there are people of a different race or ethnicity, different language, different culture that doesn't make our cultures inferior. And historically, immigrants have been forced to assimilate. It has been something that is part, part of colonialism. It's a way to conquer people, uh, people groups. But it's so harmful. And so what I advocate for is integration. That is, we encourage people, we bless them as they keep their culture, their language, all of who they are, and they also are integrating into American or Canadian culture. So they're learning the language, whether it's French or English, they are learning to navigate the culture. Immigrants want that just as much as native citizens want it for them. Mm -hmm. um, but what we don't want is to lose ourselves or lose our identity in them. And I think that's not something that God desires either. Mm -hmm. You know, God created you and me with the bodies we have in the countries we were born in. So that was God's desire. And to be forced to be another person, well, that's a betrayal, right, of myself. It's a betrayal and a denial of who I am. And it's essentially rejecting the image of God in me, right? the way that God created me. And so that's what we put upon people. And sometimes, you know, I hear f sometimes from people who are white Americans, you know, they'll tell me, well, you know, my ancestors were forced to assimilate. And I'm like, and isn't that sad? Mm -hmm. Isn't that a loss for you that you lost your German language or you lost your uh, Italian language and you lost that culture because they were forced. Don't you want to prevent immigrants now from that same kind of loss? It shouldn't be that we want people to suffer just as we suffered. That's mm -hmm. not love and it's not kind. And so what we want is for people to be fully themselves. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And so that's one of the ways that white supremacy shows up, but it also shows up in the, in the people that we center in the conversation and it's always workers it's always laborers so it's human resources not human beings these brown people asian people black people they come here to work and support our systems but they're not human beings yeah and so we don't have protections for them we don't care you know what's happening to them how they're living that they're on the margins of society, that their neighborhoods are under-resourced because we only care about the work and not the human being. And that's another form of white supremacy um, because it's essentially saying some lives are more important and worthy mm -hmm. than other lives. And usually those lives that are more worthy are white. 
Mm-hmm. And it's very problematic. And again, it's not as if people are screaming in the streets, we're superior to you, but it shows up in the systems we create, the words we use, the pressure that we put on people. When we tell people to speak English, you see so many videos on TikTok and Instagram and of people being rude to an immigrant person and telling them to speak English. We see um, other forms of this when people are pressured to give up their culture. And I tell in the in the book, I, I talk about how I live this fragmented kind of life where I was one person at work and another person because... I didn't feel the freedom to be fully myself. I saw how the people who were fully themselves were marginalized and treated in the first job that I had. And I didn't want that for myself. And so I think this is the way that it's showing up. And it's something we really have to root out. This Mm -hmm. is not the way of God. This is sinful and incredibly harmful to people. So good. It is still there. I will say, especially in my context of Canada, you know, the change as far as acceptance of people of color. I mean, from when I was 13 and, and back in like mid 80s to now, it's it's a shift and change in so many ways. But we still have a lot of work to do, I, you know. Um, so I really appreciate that. That's It's got me thinking a lot about some things there. You know, as we talked about not the way of God. I, I want to say this. And again, I, I love the church, but I also know the challenges of church. I, I've been on the board of a church, involved in church most of my life. But Karen, what how, what would you say, you know, how has the church and the interpretation of the Bible done harm toward immigrants? You know, you talk a lot about biblical ethnocentrism um, and it's, it's real. You know, my mm-hmm. husband calls it, you know, also spiritual colonialism. Yes, um, that's a great term. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because we're talking about that because we're very aware. And I think one of the things in your book that just was like, whoa, was when you're talking about how you were moving or having to get rid of some things and you put out your books that had kind of shaped your theology and faith, you know, in your life. And you realize that all the books were written by white men from a North American perspective. And I read mm-hmm. most of those, like the most of the authors that you wrote there. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was about prayer. That was, you know, I mean, on and on and on. And how you realized that a lot of our shaping of our own understanding of faith and God and the way we see the world what has been shaped by white men in, mm-hmm. in our own faith and theology. And I actually took a pause. I was like, and so, you know, my husband is white. And, but, you know, we talked about it and he actually said that him and his friends who are pastors or people in church, they now have, Karen, this sort of pact that any book on theology or faith that they now buy or read has to be from outside of North America and mostly from women of color and other people of color in their own theology. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, I'm, and I'm so, it was so good to hear that. I didn't actually know that. Like, that's what they say. Like, they have, they have all said we, we need to look at that. And I want, I want to hear more about this. I'm fascinated about this biblical um, ethnocentrism and what the church has done, some of the harm in the, in the Bible, and what we can do about that, especially for someone who's in Christian ministry. Mm-hmm. I do. This could be a yeah. whole show, but this is really important to me. This one, I'm like, oh, this is good. 
Yeah, and I think it's, you know, sometimes when I talk about ethnocentric Bible reading, that we're only reading the Bible from one perspective, people think, oh, you're being, you know, anti-white male. And I'm like, no, no. not at all. Right. White males are also made in the image of God. They have good things to share, too. Yes. The problem is they have been the only ones who had the mic and the pen writing the commentaries and the books. And what we're saying is we want to add books mm -hmm. and we want to add perspectives to that. And so yes. by all means, read your favorite, you know, white male theologian, but also read black women and Asian women and women from Latin America and African perspectives. All of these things are also important perspectives on the scriptures. And so I ran across this first as when I was working cross-culturally and started to realize that the people where I lived in Central Asia and uh, really saw different things in the Bible because their culture, their social location, their experiences were very different from mine. And yet all the American uh, church plants, there was also Korean church plants, they were really forcing their perspective mm. on this community. Like, no, this is the correct way to read the Bible. This is what you're supposed to see in it. And and really not allowing the, not really acknowledging that God is the God of all of us and that God has been at work in this community yes. long before any of us showed up, right? Mm -hmm. And so to me, this was really troubling because I started to recognize, well, this isn't really good because mm -hmm. The gospel should be contextual. God should reveal God's self to people mm -hmm. on all different of all different cultures, right? And so what I think is harmful about that is one, it it teaches people to only see that there is one correct thing to see in the Bible. Whereas I remember reading the story of the Seraphonician woman in Mark chapter seven. You know, this is the woman that comes to Jesus when he's just wanting a break and she's this foreign woman and she invades his space and asks him to heal her daughter of demon possession. And Jesus kind of calls her a dog. She says, well, I came here for the children, right? It's not fair to give to the dogs what I brought for the children. And she says, well, even the dogs get the crumbs. Hmm. And Jesus says, you're right. And he heals her daughter and he affirms her words and he says you know because of your words you know your daughter has been healed and I read this little story it's a very short little story in the gospels it's told in two gospels Matthew and Mark I read it from different perspectives when I read it from the perspective of black women in America what I saw was they focused on the fact that this woman used her voice hmm. she spoke up for herself and for her family. She wouldn't let these divisions of, you know, being unclean or being foreign or being a woman, none of these things that she let get in the way of speaking up. And when I read it from the perspective of women who are Latinas, what they saw was a mother surviving, doing everything she could, breaking rules if she has to, but she has to survive for herself and for her child. And when I read it from the perspective of white males, again, they also have a valuable mm -hmm. perspective. What they saw is they felt that this was a kind of theater, that Jesus was 
um, pretending for the sake of teaching his um, his disciples. Um, and so they saw Jesus had just said in the verse above that it wasn't what was outside that made you unclean, but what was inside. So they saw, obviously, then, if that's true, and Jesus has just said this, then this is a kind of theater hmm. uh, for teaching people. So again, same story, but different people read it differently. And this is really valuable because all those perspectives are true. We do need to use our voices to speak up against injustice. We do need, right, the people who are willing to break rules and speak out and to, and to, to get something just and good to happen in the world. And then we do need people preaching and speaking the truth and illustrating it to others. All these things are necessary and important, but we've only gotten one message mm-hmm. of those. And we're missing the richness of the body of Christ when we're not allowing all these diverse perspectives and what we're telling women and people of color, people of other ethnicities, what we're telling people is that you're less made in the image of God Mm. than white males because they're the only ones who get to interpret the Bible. You don't get to do that. That's not work that you do. And And that's a very important message. And can you believe that, I mean, you know, that we're still struggling with women leading and speaking in the church? To this day, I still, you know, again, people could be like, but, you know, I have a 16-year-old daughter who overheard me in a conversation talking to somebody about that. She was shocked because she goes, all of your friends, Melinda, are CEOs, presidents, media personality, authors, speakers outside of the church, all doing it. And she goes, and did I just hear that you have a friend who can't do that in the church where it's supposed to be a freedom and liberation and opportunity. And I said, I know, honey, and like it just, you know, for this generation, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible. It to them. And even when I talk to you about this, I still can't believe that there are still those challenges. I mean, thankfully I have found spaces and churches that are very pro women. And I have, honestly thank god um communities and friends and family who have all my life encouraged my abilities and passions and giftings um and so it's been hard kind of on the outside but in the inside i've always had you know mentors and people really pushed me forward and that's the big thing you know even Mm -hmm. when i had great opposition but you know the other part too that i liked is that you also mentioned the story of the prodigal son and again, I was talking to my husband, Chris, about it. And he said when he was in Africa, it was the same thing where, you know, our whole idea of the prodigal is the prodigal left and he came back embraced by his father and, oh, joy, bless, yay, you know. And he goes, just like in your book, but he was saying how in Africa when he was there, they were like, why did the son leave the family? Like that was the basis of their, it's like, what's the point of the story? They're like, well, why would the son leave the family? Like the safety, the family, like the unit, like that makes right. no sense. The community. The community. Like, and he was, you know, and he said the same thing in your book. He's like, well, no, no, no. The point is, <laughs> the point yes. is the heart of the father, the father picking up his robes and running to the son after the son squandered his life. And they're like, well, yeah, of course he would do that because it's family. Or, but back to the point of why did the son leave in the first place? You know, and you're like, oh. 
because I've always been taught, you know, that story is from this perspective of the ridiculous son and wanting to do his life and the father. And then you've got the, you know, disgruntled older brother in the back and you know, all that stuff. So I think what you're saying is so true. Like the perspective of the scriptures from different cultural context and gender and experience is rich. And I feel, I think what really came to me, Karen, was that we have missed out on that. So many people have only heard and read the scripture through that lens and not through all the other voices that can add a, a depth and richness in another part of the story. That's what's sad. Yes. You know, I mean, that's what, that's it's, what I grieve. Like, even for me, I have missed out. I mean, I've had growing up in Asia, I saw perspective, but you know, sometimes I have to be careful because I'm in a, in a culture here in my Christian ministry and in, you know, what I do and where there is sometimes a, a narrative, you know, a perspective. And so um, what, what you've really challenged me in is just this intentionality of, of, of hearing the stories through different voices and lenses. It's really key. It's really good. It's really great in your book to bring that and bring it to my attention. I'm like, oh, I've got to remember that and be intentional about, about that. So I appreciate that. I could talk to you for hours and hours and I have like five more questions, but I'm going to jump to one last one because I think for people to get this book again, beyond welcome, I love how you talked about the stories of Joseph and Moses and what you'd mentioned earlier, Rahab, you know, sort of guiding us through these characters who were also foreigners, how the idea of assimilate different outcomes, different experiences, but how God used them. I think that was incredible in the start of the book. You talk a lot about, looking at Jesus and his hospitality in the Bible and what we can learn from him in our kind of reimagined hospitality. And that's good. But maybe we should end on this whole idea, which is always interesting, is that we are all foreigners. And you keep saying in the script in your book, our citizenship is the kingdom of heaven. I think it's a good yes. end to just remind people, like we all are foreigners. Like as we're talking about immigrants, mm -hmm. how to be, how to look, how the church should respond. Um, your thoughts on that, Karen, just this idea. Yes, it's really interesting that this this verse about how the only citizenship that matters is citizenship in, in heaven is given to us by Paul. Mm -hmm. And Paul, oh, Paul was a Roman citizen. <laughs> yeah. You know, he was a Roman citizen and he experienced the privileges that came with that. And even with that privilege, he tells them, Listen, the only citizenship that matters is citizenship in heaven, because here's the thing. Citizenship in any country will give you a few things, but take from you a lot. Taxes, for example, right? Mm -hmm. You get that gets taken. Sometimes military service is required of you, right? There's a lot that's taken from you when you're a citizen. The right of belonging takes a lot from you. But here's the interesting thing. Being a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven doesn't take from you hmm. at all. In fact, you only benefit. You only receive. You receive, one, being part of the family of God. So you, you receive this belonging into a kingdom that never ends, into a kingdom that's never going to be conquered or destroyed you are welcomed into a body, a family, a community. So this is the only citizenship that matters, says Paul. So he telling people essentially, look, 
It doesn't matter being a citizenship of Rome, right? We're reading this 2,000 years later. Rome has long since ceased to be an empire. And empires have come, come and gone. But that the kingdom that we belong to is a kingdom that will not end. Hmm. And that's why this is the only citizenship that matters. It's really, really beautiful the way that he... You know, we kind of lose some of the meaning of his words because our contexts are so different. But he's essentially saying, this means nothing to me, this Roman citizenship. We are all foreigners because our true home, you know, is in heaven. It's with Christ. So good. Karen, this was rich. And I again, there was other questions I wanted to ask you, but we'll have to do it another time. Or for our viewers and listeners, we'll just have to get this book. Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration by Karen Gonzalez. Karen is also on Instagram as, is it Karen J. Gonzalez? At underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. Yeah. So you can check her out there. Karen, thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing, your story, this book. Uh, so good. It was so good. And it was so timely for me. It was just a great book, and it was great to chat with you. It really was. Um, thank you. Thank you for just yeah. coming with me. Thank you, Melinda. It was great to have this conversation. Really Love appreciate it. it. And to our listener, if this conversation has been a lot, um, I hope you'll take some time today to listen back to Karen and my conversation. Take some notes. Pray. Talk with someone about what you've heard Karen say. You know, I think it's really important to pause and reflect on conversations you've heard and not just keep going and think, oh, that's good, but not actually think about what is God saying to you. I think it's time to, to pause and breathe and reflect, pray, and then choose to do something. These conversations are good, but they're even better when it moves you and motivates you to change the way you think, to do something, to dismantle white supremacy to put immigrants at the center of your conversations, uh, to help those in need, to so much. And so, yeah, beyond welcome, again, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration, get this book. It's great for the new year uh, to read it, um, read through it. You can even do it, honestly, it might even be a great book club book, but it's important and grateful for you, Karen. Um, and as I say, as you do this, Know that you are seen, heard, and deeply loved by God. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to See, Here Love, the podcast with Melinda Estabrooks. Stay connected with our daily posts and stories on Instagram or Facebook at See, Here Love, or join our newsletter at www.seeherelove.com.